Welcome to the Blue Stocking Baptist Podcast. My name is Hannah Oliver, and I'm here with my co-host, Esther Faulkner. Esther and I are both particular Baptists who hold to the 1689 London Baptist Confession of Faith. The Blue Stocking Baptist Podcast is an informal podcast for women with intelligent and literary interests related to Christian doctrine and life. Esther and I both have a passion to see unbelievers come to the faith, and so we hope our material will be used for the furtherance of God's kingdom. We also have a passion for equipping women with the tools they need to exercise discernment, and we desire to see more Christian women understand and love the deep theology that is found in God's Word. On today's episode, we're interviewing Michael Hoy. Michael is a member of um, our Sending Church um, and the church that we're a part of. We're members together, Troy Church. Michael is an ex-Roman Catholic, and he'll be sharing a little bit of his testimony of how God saved him and answer some of your questions concerning Roman Catholicism. We're going to break up his interview um, probably into two parts. The first part is going to uh, where we're going to hear Mike's testimony and answer. He's going to try to answer your questions concerning the grounds of justification, the atonement, communion, Christ, and tradition and scripture. Part two will be more of the ends and outs questions, questions concerning Mary, saints, purgatory, and the Pope. Keep in mind that much of the topics that we're going to be discussing tend to bleed together. So we might get on to the topic of Christ as the Redeemer, and we might mention that in Roman Catholicism, there's an idea that Mary is a co-redeemer. But we won't get into specific Marian questions until part two. So, um, Mike, to start us off, we'd love for you to share, us, uh, share with us a little bit of your testimony of how God saved you um, and pulled you out of Roman Catholicism. Yeah, absolutely. Um, first, I just want to say I really appreciate the opportunity to uh, just kind of talk about my testimony um, and just having the opportunity to answer questions concerning the Roman Catholic uh, faith. It's pretty, you know, pretty important to me and a big deal in my life. Uh, to start, I was um, I was born and raised in a Roman Catholic family. Um, my family was pretty devout in their faith, uh, more so my dad's side of the family. My mom converted to Roman Catholicism when they married. Um, but regarding my dad's side of the family, yeah, they uh, very, very devout. And, um, you know, that being the case, me and my siblings were also pretty devout. Um, in fact, my grandma is probably one of the most devout Roman Catholics I know, and uh, one of my uncles, in fact, are, um, are he is a missionary uh, priest. So, um, yeah, I've got uh, a lot of history with the, with the Roman Catholic faith, and and born and raised in a pretty pretty devout family. Um, growing up, I kind of always had a lot of convictions about what we believed. I had a lot of questions concerning what we believed. Uh, specifically, you know, I remember I would, you know, I'd come back from school and I'd run into my parents' bedroom and ask my dad, hey, you know, why do we pray to Mary? Um, and he would give me his responses and I would just kind of, you know, that would, that would suffice and I would move on. Um, I would, I remember asking my dad, you know, hey, do we believe in purgatory? Um, you know, people talked about it at school. I didn't know much about it, but I wanted to ask him, hey, do we believe in this? And so that's a pretty important aspect to my story because when I came to college, I um, I had, well, you know, college in South Alabama, the Bible Belt. So <laughs> we, uh, you know, a lot of people um, were Baptists and mainly Baptists were my friends. And so they would, they would invite me to church. They'd ask me questions and I would give my defense, my reasonings for what we believed as a Roman Catholic. And, you know, they wouldn't stop asking me to go to church. And eventually I was to the point where I, I just say yes, just to get them to stop asking me. I just, Those I said, are some yes, good friends. I'll go. <laughs> right, right, right. And so, um, I finally went and I remember that, going to church, I would have a lot of convictions kind of resurface and a lot of my questions would kind of get answered, but they would, they would be answered through the scriptures. Um, and really at the time I didn't really know what the Bible was really. Um, I never really read the Bible. I couldn't tell you where any of the gospels were really any book in the Bible. Um, so a lot of the answers or these questions that I had were getting answered through, uh, preaching, uh, preaching, you know, the word of God. And then, um, you know, kind of fast forwarding some time, I, uh, I had a friend and they, long story short, 
um, I was kind of searching more or less, and we were studying the Bible together, and I was presented Romans 10, 9 through 10. And I'll read it real quick. Uh, that says, if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. For with the heart one believes and is justified, and with the mouth one confesses and is saved. And I remember after reading that, I, um, I broke down. I just started crying. And at that moment, I really, really started to investigate my faith. And thus began a three-year-long journey of um, me with the Bible and the Catholic doctrine and the Catholic catechism to really figure out what I believed. And um, on, um, you know, the summer of 2016, we were celebrating communion and uh, the pastor was up and, and he was praying beforehand. And I remember just having an extremely overwhelming sensation and a uh, strong desire to truly repent and follow the Lord. And I believe in that moment I was saved. Um, we, I remember my, my roommate at the time was with me and he said, you know, man, like something happened. You could have been saved. I feel like you're already saved, but we'll see what your life looks like after this. And sure enough, after that moment, my life was completely different. And um, I've spent a lot of the time, you know, talking with Roman Catholics and, and uh, I, I wouldn't necessarily say having debates or anything, but having some pretty deep, sophisticated conversations about the, the differences between Roman Catholicism and uh, Protestantism. So mm -hmm. anyway, that's kind of my story in a nutshell. So how long have you been a believer? Okay. So I've been saved since 2016. I was baptized okay. that summer as well. But I mean, I've, I would say that I've followed Jesus really for most of my life. Um, I would just say I, I didn't, I wasn't gifted the Holy Spirit until 2016. So. All right. So we're just going to jump right into some questions about the difference between Roman Catholicism and uh, the Christian gospel, which is found in the Bible. So, uh, Mike, can you tell us what the core differences are between Roman Catholicism and Protestantism? Absolutely, absolutely. Um, there, there's just three points I'd like to make real quick, just regarding the things that um, I'll be saying uh, and answering these questions. And, and the first is just that Roman Catholicism is uh, it's extremely deep. Um, so, you know, really we'll more or less be scratching the surface on these things, but it is enough to become educated and to have a discussion and a conversation with a Roman Catholic. Um, and really, my belief is that the Roman Catholic Church was founded in uh, around 325 AD under the role um, of uh, Constantine in the Roman Empire. So that being the case, there's 1700 years of, uh, of theology. Um, so it, there's a lot to unpack. Um, the second point is that just kind of regarding these things, you know, I, I wanted to make an effort to pull um, a lot of topics out of the Roman Catholic Catechism, uh, just to kind of make sure that, you know, I back up the things that I say. Mm -hmm. And um, I think it's just important for those who do have conversations with Roman Catholics to really know what, um, what their beliefs are, what their doctrines and dogmas are, and what they state. Um, and then, one thing that'll be interesting that uh, your listeners may uh, notice is that a lot of our beliefs are in a lot of ways pretty similar, pretty close. Uh, mm -hmm. The differences is that those differences are extremely big and important uh, and they make a huge difference. So uh, that's just kind of something interesting that I wanted to point out. Now, regarding the differences between Roman Catholicism and Protestantism. So the first core difference I would say would be the gospel of faith alone versus the gospel of faith and works. Mm -hmm. And I believe that um, uh, we'll talk a little bit more about what faith and works kind of means in regards to Roman Catholicism. But that is certainly one of the bigger differences between the two. And, and what I mean by that is, so we believe that an individual is saved by faith and that faith alone, but that faith isn't derived by the individual by himself, mm -hmm. but rather given by God. Right. Whereas 
the Roman Catholic, they will absolutely 100% affirm the, this, this, the uh, necessity of faith. But within the Roman Catholic theology and belief system, works are essentially tied in with that faith and that you have to have good works with that faith in order to essentially have justification and salvation. Okay. And, and like I said, we'll, we'll dig into that a little bit more in a little bit, I believe. So, um, but that's the first, that's the first difference. I would say the second difference, which is absolutely huge would be communion. This, if you ever talk with a Roman Catholic is typically going to be the biggest thing and the hardest thing mm. for a Roman Catholic to ever give up or I guess to kind of move away from. Um, and so for us, right, communion is, is essentially a memorial that can be practiced anytime during the year. Uh, you know, throughout scripture, we see uh, different memorial acts used um, or God just kind of commanding his people to create memorials to remember the things that he has done for them, right? Joshua is a perfect example of this. They cross the river and God commands each tribe to gather a stone and to mm -hmm. make a memorial for what they did. So um, that to us is what uh, is the significance of communion, what we believe uh, the establishment was for. Um, for the Roman Catholic, this is, uh, I'm going to read from uh, the catechism. It's section 1367. And it states the sacrifice of Christ and the sacrifice of the Eucharist, which to Roman Catholics, the Eucharist is communion for us, mm -hmm. uh, are one single sacrifice. The victim is one and the same. The same now offers through the ministry of priests who then offered himself on the cross. Only the manner of offering is different. In this divine sacrifice, which is celebrated in the mass, the same Christ who offered himself once in a bloody manner on the altar of the cross is contained and is offered in an unbloody manner. This sacrifice is truly propitiatory. Okay. So that's a lot. Uh, that's a big, that's, that's, it's a big paragraph there. Um, but that essentially encompasses what the Roman Catholics believe as, you know, uh, their form of communion. Um, the one thing I would just like to mention, if, if anyone's really interested in listening to a really good presentation on the Eucharist for Roman Catholics, uh, James White does an incredible presentation at uh, the G3 conference in 2017 on the Eucharist. Um, yeah. You can find it on YouTube pretty easily, but it, I mean, it's very, very, very good. Very good. Um, very educational. So <clears throat> regarding communion and the differences between Roman Catholicism and Protestantism. Uh, one point I really wanted to make and, and emphasize is if you're talking to a Roman Catholic and you're using scripture, you know, as a means of conversation, almost always they will refer to John six. Okay. And so I just kind of want to briefly, as briefly as I can kind of run through John six and what that looks like and what to watch out for and really what the, the passage is trying to tell us. Okay. Uh, so like I said, I'm not going to read it, but John six, right. The verses are 22 through 59, essentially. You can go further if you want to, but really 59 is kind of the, the passage. Um, that is read or really what's going on in, in John six. And so we're not going to read it. Um, but essentially what's taking place is, is this is after Jesus feeds 5,000. Okay. And um, Jesus crosses the sea and then the, his quote unquote disciples, right? Those who are there and part of the feeding of the 5,000, they follow him across the sea. Okay. And what happens is, is the next day they're there and Jesus essentially calls them out for seeking him only for his miracles, mm -hmm. right? He's feeding them. He's healing them. He's doing these amazing miracles. And Jesus knows the hearts of these individuals and that they're only following him because of the miracles that he's performing, not to truly know him and to believe in him. Okay. Next you know, these are Jews, right, that, that are following him, that are these quote-unquote disciples, right? And um, essentially, the Israelites ate the manna um, that perishes, and Jesus mm -hmm. brings us up, right? And Jesus essentially says that the Son of Man will give you eternal food. And he is, of course, talking about himself, right? And then he, he um, and, and then, you know, upon making this statement, um, 
from Jesus, right? They ask, okay, well, how can we, you know, receive this, this eternal food? Mm -hmm. And Jesus says that, you know, if you believe in me, you'll never hunger, you'll never thirst. Okay. And then what takes place is, well, it goes further and Jesus actually, or the Jews bring up the fact, well, you know, how can there be eternal food if our forefathers ate the manna, the manna that came down from heaven yet still died? So how can you offer us this eternal food? Mm -hmm. And Jesus says again, you know, if you believe in me and you will no longer hunger, you'll never thirst. And they're not, they're not grasping what Jesus is trying to say here. Okay. And then they begin to grumble. Okay, then that, that's pretty significant. They start pushing back at Jesus and and they're they're again they're just not they're not making sense of what Jesus is trying to say. Okay. And then so that kind of takes place in the first part of this passage. And then towards the very end of this passage, Jesus eventually says, If you do not eat my eat my flesh or drink my blood, you mm-hmm. will not have eternal life. Okay. Mm-hmm. That is exactly where the Roman Catholics will take you and they will sit on the very end of this passage. And oftentimes they will disregard the whole entire beginning part of this passage. Yeah, the and context. Miss, right, exactly. And they'll, they'll miss the point that Jesus is trying to make. Okay. And, um, you know, additionally, if we take the reality of what Jesus is saying, that if mm-hmm. you believe in me, you'll have eternal life, we can use the entirety of scripture to defend that positioning, mm-hmm. right? But I just think it's important uh, for us to know that oftentimes Roman Catholics will flip to this immediately, especially when they try to use scripture with us, um, and just kind of really understanding what's taking place. Um, you know, I like to really emphasize if you, you know, if someone presents a, a, a verse or a passage to you, it's so important to read before and after what's yeah. taking place and what they're, what they're presenting to you. Because way too often people take passages and, and verses out of context. And, um, you know, in, in this case, they oftentimes do. So anyway, that's a little bit about communion and the differences there. Just one quick question. Um, the best way to summarize that would be that the Eucharist is uh more of a a well because there's multiple different views in christianity of what Mm. the lord's supper is but it would be the eucharist would be the belief that they're actually feeding on the physical body Mm. of jesus christ correct yeah that's absolutely right they they think they they think the priest is given the uh divine ability to turn the wafer and wine into actual flesh and blood okay so that's So that's why it's important to understand that John six is not saying in which the doctrine would be trans. Is it transubstantiation? Is that how you say that? Mm -hmm. But it's it. The context is faith in Jesus Christ. Right. What he's referring to, because he is the bread of life and Mm -hmm. he gives them eternal life. Yeah, that's exactly right. Thank you for pointing that out. Clarifying that. Yeah, they, they do hundred percent believe that it's the body and blood. And so that is why they, they, they use this passage uh, so often because when you don't understand the reality of what Jesus is teaching, it does almost sound like he's literally mm-hmm. saying, eat my flesh and drink my blood. Mm-hmm. Did you have a third difference? Um, yeah, I did. <laughs> Thank you. <laughs> okay. Um, yeah. So the third dis- difference would be um, baptism. Okay. Mm-hmm. For us, baptism is essentially an outward expression of inward faith. Um, for the Roman Catholic, I pulled uh, from their catechism, section 1213, which says, Holy baptism is the basis of the whole Christian life, the gateway to life in the spirit and the door, which gives access to the other sacraments. Through baptism, we are freed from sin and reborn as sons of God. We become members of Christ, are incorporated into the church, and made shares in her mission. Baptism is a sacrament of regeneration mm-hmm. through water and the word. Okay, and so um, one thing to uh, re- really understand here, baptism essentially for the Roman Catholic um, wipes away the sin of original sin. Okay, and what original sin is essentially the sin of Adam that they believe stained all of humanity. Okay. And in order to remove that sin from the individual, they must become baptized. 
which is why they baptize all infants to give them a clean slate. Mm -hmm. That's right. That's right. And, and, you know, we don't really have time to discuss this, but Mm -hmm. um, they do baptize pretty much on the eighth day. Mm-hmm. Uh, which is quite similar to circumcision. Mm-hmm. Um, and they will say that the two do correlate uh, mm-hmm. quite a bit. But anyway, studying Colossians and, and other passages, you know, we're, we're led to believe that uh, there is quite a difference. There is a big difference. Let me break in. Hannah, could you, because I know that a lot of our listeners are, or some of them could be maybe leaning more Presbyterian. Could you maybe yeah. like briefly explain that? Like the How they're different? Between- yeah, could you explain that? Yeah, so first it's important to know that Roman Catholicism, baptism is the belief in like Mike saying, I don't I don't know as much about Roman Catholicism, so I won't do it as much justice, but I can explain how um, pedo-baptism is different from a con, like a confessional reform stance. But essentially, Roman Catholicism is, is there is regeneration happening essentially. So you are justified by baptism in a way that um, if you were to die after your baptism, you would not go to hell. Is that the best? Is that correct, Mike? Okay. More or less. So then for pedo-baptism, because I can explain that more clearly, pedo-baptists do not believe that baptism brings them into union with Christ, and they do not believe that a child is regenerated at its at the child's baptism. Pedo-Baptists believe that at baptism, it is a means of grace the way that they view it. So something is happening, but not in the sense of saving or wiping away original sin. Presbyterians or uh, Reformed confessional believers believe that baptism is um, bringing the child into covenant with Christ. So they would also believe that it is mirroring circumcision. Um, and that the child is now a covenant child. So brought into, brought into the visible church because there's an invisible, invisible distinction in the church from a reformed perspective. So the child is not saved at baptism. The child is not having their original sin wiped away at baptism. Um, baptism is bringing them into the visible church with the rest of God's church because they view Uh, it is a mirroring of circumcision and just like everyone who was circumcised in Israel was of Israel and Israel, not everyone in Israel was spiritually Israel. So a child will have to grow up and they're, they're not allowed to take communion, um, until they have come to faith. And so when a child is regenerated, a Presbyterian or a form believer will affirm that, that, that person was not regenerated at baptism, but that the subjective grace of the Holy Spirit of God has saved them at his choosing according to his good pleasure when he so desires. And so not every child is elect and not every child will be saved, but um, it's according to God's, God so choosing, God bringing that person to faith. And then at that point, that's when the baptism, the benefits of baptism from a reformed confessional perspective are, are given to the child. So they, uh, they have the benefits. The Westminster Confession will read to regeneration and several different things you could read it, but it's, it's not saying that regeneration is given at baptism. It's saying that now these things these things are true to the person now because they were saved by faith because now they are a believer. Um, I'm just going off memory right now. So I hope I'm doing it justice because I wasn't yeah, prepared just, to give that just, a, just an explanation. <laughs> <laughs> You're good. I just want to make sure that we show that there's a big difference between Roman Catholic baptism and reformed mm-hmm. historic paleo baptism. Yes. And then federal vision is not Presbyterianism, just to throw that in there. (laughs) But that's a different topic for a different day. Anyway. Yeah. All right. Uh, Baptism. Yeah. Okay. So the first just kind of passage I would like to bring up regarding baptism uh, would be 1 Peter 3.21. What's interesting about this passage or this verse really is that both sides kind of like to claim that it defends their own their own side um so i'll read it you know it says baptism which corresponds to this which 
uh, Peter is talking about Noah and the heart mm-hmm. uh, now saves you not as a removal of dirt from the body, but as an appeal to God for a good conscience. Okay. So really the, the Roman Catholic will sit here and say, okay, yeah, see, Peter literally says baptism, which corresponds to this now saves you. Um, and what I would say is, okay, if that were true, then would it make more sense that Peter would put a period right after the you, right? That he would stop, uh, that that would be his one and only point, but he doesn't, right? He says, mm-hmm. baptism which corresponds to this now saves you. Okay. Not as a removal of dirt from the body, but as an appeal to God for a good conscience and the not as a removal of dirt is significant there Mm -hmm. from the body. Right. Um, In other words, like this act of baptism doesn't remove the stain of anything from you, but rather this act of baptism is an appeal to God, right. For a good conscience. Um, And that's, I, I like to use this passage to kind of defend our positioning, but sometimes Roman Catholics do too. Um, but I think it's just a matter of really understanding kind of what's what Peter's talking about and, and really the whole the whole passage. Um, so in just kind of continuing on baptism, there are three kind of points I'd like to make to that kind of defend this idea or the reality that baptism doesn't save. Um, in fact, kind of like we talked about earlier, the only thing that does save is is our faith, right? Romans 10, uh, 9 through 10. Uh, that's the first one, right? It's confession and it's believing in our heart that uh, is enough for us, right? And then the thief on the cross. Uh, the thief on the cross is an absolutely beautiful example of what it looks like to be saved when someone can be a thief, right? Their whole entire life and then on the point of which, you know, they are crucified, the worst form of punishment, and hearing Jesus pray for those who are crucifying him, he then believes in Jesus and mm-hmm. Jesus says, you'll be with me forever in eternal paradise. Um, it is that confession of faith. It is that faith that he has in Jesus in that mm-hmm. moment that carries him into salvation. Um, and that, I mean, like I said, is just one of the most beautiful examples of what it looks like to be saved. Um, now I'll just mention this. Um, I have had a Roman Catholic tell me, uh, well, how do you not know he wasn't baptized before he was crucified? Um, and, you know, I mean, I've never it, heard that before. Yeah, right. And and it, and it really it really just kind of blows my mind when I hear that. Um, it it kind of just really devalues the the reality and the example and really what's taking place here. Um but anyway, that is something that I have been presented before. Like saying um, that John, then, like saying that John the Baptist baptized the thief because he was, a, was the thief Jewish or was he a Roman citizen? Yeah, I don't, I don't know. I don't know. It doesn't um, say. Yeah. So. Interesting. <laughs> right. Yeah, I know. It, you know, <laughs> when you have to add things to scripture to make it line up with your theology, it's. That's a problem. Yeah. Yeah. It's a problem. <laughs> so, um, yeah, it's not something that I give a lot of time to when I'm discussing things with Roman Catholics. Mm-hmm. It's just, it's it's a bit of an excuse, you know. Um, and then the third point would be uh, John 3.15. And this is, um, in this passage, John is referencing uh, Numbers 22, I believe 22. Um, when the Israelites are in the wilderness and they're being disobedient, the Lord sent serpents upon them and he commands Moses to, Uh, make a bronze serpent put it on a staff and raise it up and any of the Israelites that would look upon that and believe would be saved from the serpents and John uses this to directly illustrate you know 316 what we're all familiar with that if we look upon Jesus Christ and the sacrifice that he made for us and we believe in him we will be saved from our sin Okay, so those are just kind of three points that I really wanted to make when it comes to baptism and the fact that baptism gives zero salvational grace, okay? There are graces involved, but nothing that pertains to the righteousness um, of the individual. One thing that's that's uh, interesting that you can kind of push and present to a Roman Catholic when talking about baptism is uh, just kind of raising the question, what if someone believes but dies before getting baptized, okay? And I've actually come across two answers regarding this. And some will tell you that if they don't get baptized then they go straight to hell. And some will say that, yeah, they get baptized or they, they're saved without getting baptized because of their faith. Okay. And when they say that, then that's the perfect opportunity to push, you know, faith alone. The gospel. Yeah. 
Right, exactly. In that they're not being consistent with their own catechism. Mm -hmm. It's almost to the point where you have to like show them, hey, what about, you know, what about your catechism here? Right, right. We got to move along, Mike, because we got. Okay, okay. We got lots of Uh, questions. All right. So our second question is, um, what is the highest rule of authority of faith and practice in the Roman Catholic Church? It's hmm. a good question. Um, so the way I guess I'll present this would be that there are essentially three pillars within the Roman Catholic Church. And uh, those three would be tradition, scripture, and the magisterium. Okay. Um these things are very, um, very deep, right? So again, like I said earlier, I mean, it's, we just don't really have the time to really dig into it, but we will talk a little bit more about some of them on the second episode. Um, But essentially tradition for the Roman Catholic is everything that the church has practiced since its founding, uh, in my opinion, around 325 AD. And one thing I would just like to point out is that we also kind of hold fast to tradition as well. Uh, the only difference is that our tradition is found in scripture, right? Mm-hmm. So, so what we find in scripture, especially in Acts, is the same thing that we do now, but 2,000 years ago, right? And that, to me, is tradition, absolutely tradition. But for the Roman Catholic, there are traditions that have been adopted or established by the church that have taken place over time. Um, For example, the Marian dogmas and doctrines, those weren't, those didn't really come about until 600 AD. Okay. And so there are just these traditions that can be um, brought into the church and established by the church. And then just multiple different things that um, I guess can just really be considered tradition that the church equates right? Authority, like with authority, with uh, scripture in the magisterium, okay? Scripture, they, they affirm that scripture is another pillar of authority within the church. Um, and then the magisterium. And what the magisterium is, is essentially um, the clergy of the Roman Catholic Church. And just to keep it simple, that would be the pope, the bishops, and the priests, Okay. What's interesting about this um, that I kind of like to raise um, as a question to Roman Catholics when I talk about them is the fact that, you know, the Roman Catholic really has to be honest with the fact that the magisterium has really, I mean, essentially has more authority than tradition and scripture simply because the magisterium has the power to define what both of them mean in relation to the Roman Catholic. Okay. Um, I, I hope that makes sense. But it, within the church, the, rad, the magisterium is what defines scripture and it is what defines tradition, right? Um, for example, the Pope and the magisterium, with um, he has the authority to declare what is dogma, what is doctrine, what's allowed in the church, and what's not allowed in the church. Um, and so to me, the Roman Catholic really has to be honest with themselves and evaluate, you know, does the magisterium actually have more authority than scripture and tradition? And I would argue that, yes, it does. It does. It absolutely has more authority. Therefore, scripture and tradition are not as authoritative. Mm-hmm. Okay. So yeah, that, that's, that's about what I got for the highest rule of authority. Cool. Yeah, that was a good way of explaining that. Thank you. Okay, so I'm going to wait till you're done drinking that because I can hear it on my end. (laughs) (laughs) My mouth gets dry. No, you're fine. (laughs) Okay, so the next question that we have, Mike, is what is the rock on which Christ says he would build his church? And I know this is one of the cornerstone (laughs) theological doctrines in the Roman Catholic Church, but will you explain that a little bit? Yeah, I was going to say. No pun intended there, huh? No pun pun. intended. (laughs) (laughs) Okay. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, that's, man, that's a really good question. Um, it's a very deep, sophisticated question. Um, like all of these things. <laughs> right. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Right. 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 Uh, but, you know, I mean, I have a, I have like a, about a 10 page document 
a single spaced response to the uh, you know the the office of the pope okay and and this is a large part of it um it's yeah it's pretty complicated but so i i believe that the individual is referring to um who asked this question is referring to matthew chapter 16 13 verses 13 through 20 um and, and we can read that and then we'll kind of discuss about that um so it says now when jesus came into the district of caesarea philippi he asked his disciples what do people say that the son of man is and they said some say john the baptist others say elijah and others jeremiah or one of the prophets he said to them but who do you say that i am Simon Peter replied, you are the Christ, the son of the living God. And Jesus answered him, blessed are you, Simon Barjona, for flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but my father who is in heaven. And I tell you, you are Peter and on this rock, I will build my church and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. I will give you the keys of the kingdom of heaven and whatever you bind on earth shall be bound in heaven and whatever you loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. Then he strictly charged the disciples to tell no one that he was the Christ. Okay. So. This passage is just difficult for anyone. (laughs) I know know. It, it really, really is. Yeah, absolutely. And so when you when you talk to a Roman Catholic and their interpretation of this passage, uh, what's interesting is that verses 13 through 16, the subject of these verses is Jesus. Mm-hmm. Okay? And then the very last um, verse, verse 20, the subject is also Jesus. But in between those, 17 through 19, the subject matter changes to Peter. Okay. For us, we believe that 13 through 16, the subject matter is Jesus. 17 through 19, the subject matter is also Jesus. In that verse 20, the subject matter is in fact Jesus. Okay, so my point in saying that is that there's an inconsistency, first off, in the Roman Catholic Church, right? And when they interpret this verse. And that really, you know, there is a, like, that these passages or these verses in the middle are explicitly referring to Jesus and not Peter. Okay, I hope that makes sense. So, so one thing that Roman Catholics will bring up when discussing this passage is first the name change. Okay, they say, well, because he changed his name, right, this is the establishment of the first Pope, Peter, um, and that Peter is the rock of which Jesus will build his church. Okay, so we don't deny the fact that the name changes you know, mm-hmm. is, you know, we don't deny that it is significant because it is. And, and what's, what we believe is taking place here is that yes, the rock here that Christ will build his church is Christ himself. Mm-hmm. But, but Jesus is essentially affirming Peter to being the first shepherd of that church, mm-hmm. right? Or the first pastor or the first elder of that church. Okay. And, and this makes sense when we, when we read verse 19 and Jesus mm-hmm. says, I will give you the keys of the kingdom. Mm-hmm. Okay. You can, you can push against the Roman Catholic and say, okay, okay. First off, what are the keys? And second, where does, where does Peter receive these keys? Because Jesus says, I will give you these keys, but nowhere in scripture do we see where Peter is actually given these keys. Okay. But for us, our interpretation of keys would be the word of God, the scriptures. Okay. So as Peter being the first shepherd of the first church established by Christ founded on Christ, Peter's given the authority Mm -hmm. with scripture to preach the word of God. Okay. Those are the keys to kingdom, right? If you hear the word of God and you believe you're saved, you're going to heaven. Okay. So that's essentially what, you know, really what the interpretation, I think the correct way to interpret this passage is. Okay. Now, what is oftentimes also discussed when, when talking to Roman Catholics is the significance of rock here. Okay. Mm-hmm. In verse 18, he says, and I tell you, you shall, uh, you are Peter and on this rock, I will build my church. Okay. Roman Catholics will tell you that this rock that, um, that Jesus is referring to is Peter because Peter means rock. But the reality is that taking a whole of scripture with right. Yeah, that absolutely. But also just taking a simple look 
at uh, the Greek translation in this passage kind of reveals the alternative to the Roman Catholic um, positioning on this, okay? So we believe that the rock is Jesus Christ, okay? And here are four scripture passages that refer to Jesus as a rock, okay? Actually, sorry, I'm going to give you five, okay? The first one is Matthew 21, 42, Romans 9, 33, Isaiah 8, 14, and 28, 16, okay? And then 1 Corinthians 10, 4, which we will read, okay? And 1 Corinthians 10, 4 says, And all drink the same spiritual drink, for they drank from the spiritual rock that followed them. The rock was Christ, mm -hmm. okay? But to take it one step further, what is very significant and important to understand here is that Within the Greek, in this verse 18, Peter is translated as Petros, okay, which is masculine. And then the rock here is translated as Petra, okay, which is feminine. Now, if you go back to the verse that I just read, 1 Corinthians 10, 4, right, which says, I'll read it again. And all drank the same spiritual drink, for they drank from the spiritual rock that followed them, and that rock was Christ. Christ in this, and that rock, right, which... Christ is described as is the feminine version Petra. Okay. So I am left to believe <laughs> and multiple people are left to believe that this rock in verse 18 is in reference to Jesus and not Peter. Mm -hmm. Okay. So I hope that made sense. And I hope that answers the question. What is the rock on which Christ says he will build his church? Ooh. And it's, in, it's himself. Yeah. <laughs> and then I just want to bring a little bit of clarification for the last part of the verse when he tells mm -hmm. Peter, that you'll be able to bind what's on earth and mm. that I, I don't know necessarily what, the, what your guys' opinions are, but I'm led to believe that's in reference to church discipline. Would you agree with that? Yeah. Yeah, mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. yeah definitely. And, and even just the authority of the word itself, mm -hmm. you know, if you don't it's the authority the word. of yeah. the word that even establishes right. what is, yeah. Uh, yeah. Mm -hmm. yeah. It's not, yeah. it's not like Kim and yeah, yeah. Copeland trying to bind right. or yeah. hurricane, right? right. <laughs> yeah. okay so this fourth question is a little bit loaded so let me mm. read all of it um i thought it was a really good question so we had one lady um she asked or she said that many roman catholics that she knows um say that they do not believe that they are saved by faith and faith plus works she said that she knows that there's the, the historic roman catholic catechisms and councils say otherwise um, so are average Roman Catholics unaware of this official doctrine? Are they taught to hide it? Um, is this directly taught to Roman Catholic congregations? Wow. That is, that is a good question. Uh, and it is a loaded question. Um, you know, yeah, I, I, you know, in fact, within the past couple of years, I've, I've been hearing the same thing. I, I was talking to a guy um, who was actually converting to Roman Catholicism and we were talking about faith and works. And he's like, no, 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 dude, I, I believe in faith alone. And I was just, I mean, I was shocked to hear yeah. that. And I was like, what are you talking? How do you, how do you believe that? And I, you know, I reached out to the local missionary and, and he's like, yeah, man, yeah, yeah. Faith alone. And, and, and so, you know, that, that, that was surprising to me. And what I think that is honestly, to tell you the truth, I, I think, I think it's kind of the church trying to be able to relate to us better. I really do think that's what's taking place. And their evangelical efforts to reach Protestants, I think that they're trying to relate to us better. Okay, so let's kind of talk about um, really what faith and, and what more specifically what works are and what how we can define works within the Roman Catholic Church. Um, and so really essentially the, what the works are when we say faith plus works in regards mm -hmm. to Roman Catholicism are the uh, seven sacraments. Okay. Mm -hmm. And essentially what happens is when the Roman Catholic participates in these sacraments, they're receiving what is known as salvational grace. Mm -hmm. Okay. And this is extraordinary grace that brings on essentially righteousness to the individual mm -hmm. okay um and so here are just a kind of a few points from the catechism that we can use to kind of more or less prove 
<laughs> to Roman Catholics that yes, their catechism does affirm and actually demand good works and good merits uh, for the individual. Okay, so section eleven twenty nine says the church affirms that for believers the sacraments of the new covenant are necessary for salvation. Sacramental grace is the grace of the Holy Spirit given by Christ and proper to each sacrament. The Spirit heals and transforms those who receive him by conforming them to the Son of God. The fruit of the sacramental life is that the spirit of adoption makes the, makes the faithful partners in the divine uh, nature by uniting them in a loving union with the only Son, the Savior. Okay, 1993 says justification establishes cooperation between God's grace and man's freedom. 1997, grace is a participation in the life of God. 2025, the last one that I'll mention, we can have merit in God's sight only because of God's free plan to associate man with the work of his grace. Merit is to be ascribed in the first place to the grace of God and secondly to man's collaboration. Man's merit is due to God. Okay. Quick, quick question. That first one that you read at the end, when it says yeah. union, is it in reference to the sacrament brings union to Christ? I believe so. I believe so. That I that, find that fascinating. Yeah. <laughs> I, now, listen. I could be wrong. Um, I could, but it makes sense to me that yes, it is union with the Son, the Savior, because you know, the Eucharist, communion, is one of the seven sacraments, and mm -hmm. they believe that by consuming the Eucharist, that they are growing close and essentially uniting with Christ as they participate in that sacrament. Okay, so I, I would be led to believe yes, but I could be wrong. I just want. But you all, but. They also believe it in the sense that without it, you, because I think it's also important to note that Roman Catholics are semi-Pelagian, correct? Borderlining Pelagian. Am I correct in yeah. saying that? Yeah. And so their, their soteriology is going to be different than like, so Esther mm -hmm. and I would be Calvinists. I'm assuming Mike, you're a Calvinist because you go to right. a church. <laughs> yeah. um, because you, you're essentially by doing the sacraments, choosing to save yourself in a way correct or right, yeah. i mean yeah because you can deny participating in the sacraments and by doing so you're denying your own salvation yes because it's literally saying necessary for salvation so right. if you deny to participate in what is viewed as saving graces then you won't be saved even if it's by faith alone mm -hmm. because you have that's to right. that's right you have yeah. to join do those things right and, and they go together that's the argument that they make Right. So, so for the Roman Catholic, it, it's faith and works that go together, run together, because for them, you can't just do the works without the faith. But likewise, you can't have the faith without the works. Right. It's like this, the stage. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Works is like mm -hmm. the second stage. Right. And that's where we oftentimes get in trouble, right? Because we say faith and works as if we're separating the two. And they'll it's, call us out. Yeah. On that. It's super difficult. I mean, just the doctrine of justification in general is a very complicated doctrine especially the differences between justification and sanctification but in a way from the way that i understand it roman roman catholics are conflating both justification and sanctification mm. saying that your sanctification is the basis for your justification rather your right. sanctification's flowing out of your justification right. Right. because right. you you have no assurance if you're a roman catholic of whether or not you're going to be saved apart mm. from your merit and your good works and what yeah. you're doing That's you're right. going to confession and being Mm -hmm. doing all the right things. Um, whereas a Christian, your assurance rests in the finished and completed work of Christ alone. Like yeah. that's, that's the object of your faith. That's what saves you. And then your sanctification, your works flow out of justification and they're closely intertwined, but they're different and making that distinction is important. But I can imagine it's really difficult when you're trying to show mm -hmm. a Roman Catholic how they're different. Right. Um, yeah. It's a challenge. That's right. So question five, are these differences in doctrines issues that we can ignore for the sake of unity? So are these doctrines secondary in nature where it's Roman Catholicism is just a different denomination and we can, we can walk together in unity towards, towards mm -hmm. heaven's gates? Or is this a division of first importance of splitting because the gospel is at stake? Yeah. That's a good question, and uh, it's a it's a hard question, uh, but you know, 
my answer would be uh, a yes and a no. Okay. And, um, it, you know, so when it comes to unity, um, I guess kind of on, on the more uh, broad definition side of unity, uh, I would say that it, you know, it depends on what the unity is. Okay. So when it comes to like evangelical efforts or outreach, serving the poor, right. Serving the community, uh, you know, with like a natural disaster or something, I would say yes. Um, that it's, you know, it's good to come together in unity, um, you know, and I would say yes. Yes, it's good in that sense. When, when it comes to teaching on doctrinal matters, uh, no, we, we can't do that. Um, that's, it's too dangerous. Um, and we just, we don't line up enough, even though, you know, from the start of things, uh, you know, we both believe that faith is absolutely necessary. And when a Roman Catholic will go out and evangelize, they are focused on faith first. Mm. You know, so, so, you know, when it comes to evangelical, you know, efforts, I mean, in ways, yeah, you know, I think so. Um, But teaching on doctrinal matters, I mean, there's, there's too many conflicts that arise now. Let me me ask a mm -hmm, clarifying question. mm -hmm. So like, what you're saying is that we cannot do missionary efforts. We cannot, we're, we're, we're not preaching the same gospel. Right. Yeah. We, um, yeah, I would go as far as to say that, no, I mean, they're, they're not the same doc, uh, gospels. Um, so yeah, when it, I mean, you know, yeah, I mean, I would say I know that, it's hard. yeah, it, it is very hard. It, it is. It's difficult. And it's hard too. Cause this is personal for you. It is. It is. Yeah. It's, it's hard yeah. for you to know, right. like there are people in the church who are Roman Catholic and right. are they really saved or not? I mean, yeah. this is kind of my opinion of like, yes, I agree that if there was a natural disaster or something, we could, we could unite in efforts with non-believers, Buddhists, mm-hmm. every type of person, because we're just trying to do the work of be the hands and feet of Jesus. And you can work with other people in that. Doctrinally speaking, though, it is a first, a first importance issue because it, it is the issue of the gospel and how we are saved and how we come to be saved. And the gospel has no room for Jesus plus works to save us. But in, in the sense of, I would, I would use the comparison of the Mormon church. Mm. Can Mormons be saved? No, never. Absolutely not. Can a Roman Catholic someone who confesses to be a Roman Catholic in the Roman Catholic church at some point, hear the gospel and be saved and truly believe the gospel, but Mm -hmm. still be ensnared in the Roman Catholic church. I would say, yes, it's possible. But if someone has come to Christ and been converted in the Roman Catholic church, they will not stay there. Christ will bring them out at some point. He will sanctify them. He will, he will lead them to a healthy church. Um, So it is difficult because yes, a person could be saved, but you have to ask the hard questions and. Yeah. Can I, yeah, can go I ahead. add on to that? Okay. Yeah. Yeah. So I, I would agree a hundred percent with that. You know, I mean, my favorite passage uh, or, you know, versus uh, Romans 10, nine through 10, you know, it's the confession and it's the belief. Um, but you know, so yeah, I, I agree. And, and again, I always preface this with, you know, you can, you can call me biased, you can call me whatever, because I do have family, I do have friends and, and all that within the church. But, you know, so I agree, I do think that, that there is, you know, a way in which Roman Catholics can experience, you know, salvation and, and be saved. But here's the thing, I will always, always treat a Roman Catholic as if they were not, you know, um, like not a believer. Right. Yeah. Uh, I would always, you know, treat them as if they were not saved just because I don't know for a fact if there is room for them to be saved. I don't know, but I want to believe that there is. Okay. And so, and I will say yes to that question, you know, but I will always treat a Roman Catholic as if they were not a believer. Like, so we could say you could, you would agree with like Roman Catholicism is is not what we would consider christianity it's not the same gospel but there could be people who are in the roman catholic church who 
maybe like like our question that we asked earlier about they were unaware of the official doctrines they weren't consistently or they didn't consistently believe that they are saved by faith and kept in faith and salvation by works so it's almost like or i guess not almost like but roman catholicism can't save anyone but there could be right or there yeah. there's very likely to be people in the roman catholic there are elect people of God in the Roman Catholic Church who will eventually be called out. Yeah. But we shouldn't assume that anybody in the Roman Catholic Church is saved um, because the doctrines and dogmas and what the Pope teaches mm. are heretical in nature and cannot save right. anyone and will never save anyone because salvation does not come through the Pope or through the Roman Catholic Church or through the sacraments, but through Christ alone. Right. That's right. Yeah. Really fast, as you're, I'm gonna go just for our listeners, because uh, I'm at church and I'm recording in an office during second service so that my children are being watched. <laughs> so I have to go upstairs and get them. But Esther's gonna close out with Mike the rest of the episode, and I'm, go- you're not going to hear me because I'm not going to be here. So, um, well, thank you, Hannah. We're glad to have yes. you on the show. Thank you so much for having me. Mike, thanks for coming on. It was really nice to meet you, and I'll just talk to you later. But finish up with Esther this episode because it's still good. (laughs) All right, so last question. Um, What are some, or what is the best way to evangelize to our Roman Catholic friends and family? Maybe more so on like a practical level. Um, You've given us a lot of good questions and topics to talk about. What are some some real practical ways we can evangelize to our family and friends? Yeah, that's a good question. Um, I know, I mean, Roman Catholicism is pretty big, and at least in the United States, and and many people have a lot of Roman Catholic friends and even family. Um, So this is, I know this is a pretty big, big question. Um, I would say first and foremost, the most important thing is just to show love and kindness. Um, I would even say patience. Uh, Roman Catholics, I, you know, I was a part of this, but, you know, it, in a lot of ways, we're, we're, we're fairly prideful in what we believe, and, and um, you know, it, it can come off as offensive if we feel like we're attacked or, or whatever it might be, so, you know, I think the first thing would be, you know, just love, kindness, and patience with them. Um, however, I would say the most effective tool that we have uh, when it comes to evangelizing and, and sharing conversations with Roman Catholics is is the use of scripture. Um, everything that we discussed and, and all the points that were brought up uh, were from scripture. And everything can be found in scripture um, to kind of defend our faith and to kind of show them where uh, they're at fault. Um, so scripture is definitely one of the more important um, tools that we can use. Um, and, and then I would also say that, you know, talk to them about the differences in authority. Um, kind of a question I like to raise a lot is where's the accountability for the church and what the church demands of you to, to submit to, right? Um, if the Pope, which we'll talk about in the next episode, has the authority to uh, speak infallibly, right? If, if the church is able to declare things as, as right or wrong, where does that authority come from? And to me, there is no, or excuse me, where does that accountability come from? And to me, there is no accountability, which scares me. It, it scares me. And um, that, that's just something that um, you can raise as a question just to kind of get them thinking. You know, you don't want to, you know, the worst thing you can do is, is come from a, you know, an attacking point of view um, and get them to put up ball, uh, walls and, and barriers. But, and then I'll also say, just be knowledgeable. Um, it's hard because like I said, it's over 1700 years of, of history. So it's a lot, but being knowledgeable and be, be, being able to be relatable is a very, very positive um, way to go about it. So. Awesome. Well, thank you so much for joining us, Mike. <laughs> Absolutely. It was, a, it was a pleasure. I always love talking about these things. It's, it's well, I mean, Jesus Christ and is my favorite thing to talk about. So, yeah, And we'll be sure to, um, once you're 
ready for us to, to put your notes on mm. how, how to best evangelize to mm. Roman Catholics, we'll upload it to the show notes. I also wanted to rec- recommend um, Are We Together by R.C. Sproul. It's a really good, um, really short, practical book on basically dealing with the question, are, are Catholics Christians? and how to deal with it from a, a very loving standpoint. And then also, I've recommended The Gospel According to Rome by James um, McCarthy before. Uh, it's a great book. Um, it's really good because it compares the catechism to the Bible. Um, it's really practical, and it was actually it was a pretty fun read um, to go through. It, it read really easy. So just as a reminder, we believe that everyone is a theologian, and you're either a good one or a bad one. Our hope with our podcast is to stir in women a love for good theology and to encourage women in their faith as they walk in obedience and grow in holiness. We want to remind everyone that our podcast is only a tool and it is not a church and we do not replace discipleship. We encourage all of our listeners to find a local church and become a member. We have resources on our website for those who are seeking a church and we are always happy to help anyone who is struggling to find a healthy church. Just email us at thebluestockingbaptist at gmail.com or find us on Facebook or Twitter at SheBaptist. We also have a Patreon if you'd like to support us financially. Thank you and God bless.